Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to see such a, a large audience for the first in our this year's GTC lecture series. So I'm Denise Leavesley, the principal of Green Templeton College, and a warm welcome to you all, but particularly those of you who are new to Green Templeton College. So each year we, um, we have a series of lectures um, that are around a theme that have been select has been selected as being of relevance to a broader part of the community of Green Templeton College as possible. And this year, the series title is on delivering health, clinical and management and policy challenges. Um, so absolutely wonderful subject, as well as being really important these days. Um, it's also as I say, of great relevance to all of our different communities, our health and medical community, our management community, our applied social science community and policy community. Delivering health and healthcare is an immensely complex and expensive activity and needs cooperation and collaboration between patients, clinical expertise, management and policy makers if we're to achieve future improvements and new ways of power sharing between those interested parties in decision-making needs to be explored. So this theme um, is of four, four evenings, and this evening our topic is why is it so difficult to implement evidence-based healthcare? Um, I'll tell you at the end of the evening the next, the next few themes. Um, so the format is going to be that we've got two speakers. We've got uh, Professor Sue Dobson from the Said Business School, and then we've got, uh, and I think we're going in that order, are we? And then are we going the opposite way around? Right. So first of all, we've got Richard Gleave, um, the Deputy Chief Executive for Public Health England, um, and then we've got Sue Dobson. And then uh, one of the students will be giving a vote of thanks, so that's fantastic. Um, and we will open up for broader discussion. And we aim to finish at about 20 past seven, so that's the, the timetable for this evening. So let me start off by introducing Richard, who's going to talk about who is accountable for what and to whom in delivering health. Richard joined the NHS as a national management trainee in the West Midlands and spent 18 years working in hospital and community services in central London, the North East and the South West, including appointments as a board director in Sunderland and Bristol and as chief executive of the Royal United Hospital Bath. He's held academic appointments in health services management at Newcastle University. He's now the Deputy Chief Executive for Public Health England. His background is, I won't go through all of uh, the rest of his career, but his background is that he has a first degree in geography from Oxford University and an MSc in Health Economics and Management from Sheffield University. So you couldn't, in fact, choose a better person to make this linkage for us at Green Templeton College. And we're really pleased to have you here, Richard. Thank you. We look forward to hearing you. Thank you very much for those kind words and good evening. Now then, so uh, I'm going to 
look at the uh, this question around why is it so difficult to implement evidence evidence-based medicine, evidence-based healthcare, and Sue and I are approaching the same question, but from uh, contrasting but complementary perspectives. Uh, my uh, oh, my redefinition of the uh, question, because you're always allowed to do that, aren't you? Near the beginning, is to is to adjust the question, is really is really to focus around this issue of accountability. So, is accountability an important reason why it's difficult to implement? the evidence base. And I'm going to focus that around the area in which I work. I'm not a public health professional, but around the, the task of improving and protecting the public's health. So I'm speaking to you today uh, as someone who stands with only two legs, but actually with feet in three different camps. So that can be quite uncomfortable, but the discomfort can actually often be very stimulating and make you think about things in a different way. So I, I have one leg in the implementation world. I'm a practitioner. I'm a, I'm a manager for most of my career. I have another leg standing in the academic world, as, as Sue mentioned. And I also have a leg that stands in the policy world, because I'm a civil servant, actually, in my job now. And so I do quite a lot of work with ministers providing policy advice, as well as then implementing the consequences. And so it's from those three different perspectives that I'm going to try and pull together my reflections and, and hopefully stimulate some questions and, and some thoughts for you to take away. So since the beginning of January, I've been to probably four or five meetings, all of which have been uh, the, the, the paper that was published in the BMJ in January um, about the diabetes prevention programme has come up. Uh, and I don't know some people in here who who work in the medical field, will have, will have seen this paper, which is um, essentially a discussion... No, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an analysis of some data, actually, about whether the diabetes prevention programme is an effective intervention. Uh, NHS England and my employer, Public Health England, and Diabetes UK, the charity, have together come together to run a diabetes prevention programme in this country. And it's quite a high-profile um, program. It was signed off specifically by the Treasury. And the review concludes that the evidence base upon which this is based uh, in the model that this program is using is not yet there. Uh, it draws a contrast between two different approaches to how you might adopt prevention, what they call a screen and treat approach, and then a whole population approach. And uh, the screen and treat program approach, which is the one that's the, the main focus of the Diabetes Prevention Programme, uh, as, as they are looking at it, uh, conclude that by itself that isn't sufficient. Um, and uh, in these meetings with secondary care doctors, hospital doctors, primary care doctors, managers, policy makers, uh, medical statisticians, uh, local government uh, politicians, in all of these different meetings... Um, People have been mulling over, what should we be doing in response to this sort, of, this sort of a problem? And it's not an unusual problem, it's quite a common problem. Um, the people sitting around the table are not, haven't come together in order to design a rubbish programme that has no evidence that isn't going to benefit patients and is going to waste taxpayer money. Uh, um, so how do you deal with this dilemma between... Uh, 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 Establishing a, an intervention that, that's trying to be effective, and then what is often some quite difficult and contrasting evidence. 
So that's why I'm interested in, in, in focusing at the uh, overlapping point of these four circles. Evidence-based medicine and evidence-based healthcare. I'm not going to dwell on the, the difference between those two things. We might want to touch on it later. Evidence-based practice, which is much more around the implementation end, and evidence-based policy. Uh, with my focus being around this, uh, this challenge in the, in the box to the side, using the evidence to design a population-level intervention, so not interventions about individual patients, but about at the population level, that can be implemented, so they need to be practical, and they lead to, at a population health level, some clear benefit. So Trish Greenhaw, who's at the university here, has done a really interesting article, it's a few years old now, that talks about the, uh, the difference between evidence-based policy and evidence-based medicine and healthcare, arguing that they're fundamentally different in the paradigms that they start from, with evidence-based medicine essentially built based within the positivist, imperativist paradigm. Evidence-based policy comes from a different school, much more interpretivistic, uh, addressing specifically issues about implementation uh, and understanding the context within which things happen and understanding the value-laden of policy and what that actually means in practice and how we deal with people's, different people's perceptions and values about, about what we're trying to do. But for many people, the, the thing that sums it up, the little populist bit, you won't be surprised when I say who's, who I'm going to quote now, that managed to, to, to capture this was Tony Blair going back in time. And his phrase was, what matters is what works. And that created a whole uh, set of interest in, in evidence-based policy, but it created also that interface between evidence-based medicine and evidence-based policy. Of course, what doesn't work is just as important as what does work. But I'm going to, I'm going to explore this sort of an overlap. And I'm going to start by thinking a little bit about the evidence. Uh, and we could go into enormous detail here about the nature of the, of the evidence. I'm going to just give you uh, a, a few little vignettes that will try and capture that. And this report from the Academy of Medical Sciences, uh, which came out uh, in the autumn last year, I think we will, we will judge that this has been a really helpful and important report in trying to uh, uh, stimulate the debate about what research we should be doing about the public's health uh, for the next decade or so. Uh, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a weighty document. Um, and it talks about this new research paradigm that we, it suggests we need to adopt about the health of the public. And there's a specific recommendation in the report that relates to, to my employer um, and to some of the partner organisations that we work with, which is, which is up there. Uh, and we've decided that report is going to fear that, that that recommendation will appear prominently in our business plan for next year. This is a, a recommendation we want to uh, pick up and uh, run with uh, and uh, really try and pull it apart a bit just to test what sits behind what's quite a simple statement that it would be difficult to disagree with this. That's a different issue from putting it into practice and actually saying how are we going to commit resources, time, energy and effort in order to make this real. So 
So when we come to think about the evidence that's going to inform that sort of a research paradigm or, or the work that me and the organisation that I'm part of do about improving and protecting the public's health, then the, the, the paradigm is going to require us to think quite broadly about the evidence that we're going to use. Often when you see these sorts of tables, you think the two rows, the two, the, sorry, the two columns are actually in contrast. But here, in order to deliver on this paradigm, we need to consider the evidence that comes from both of these two columns. To focus exclusively on one is only going to lead to a partial understanding about the issue. And I'm going to just focus on the ones that I've highlighted there um, in, in yellow about the nature of the causes of the uh, problem that we're trying to address. Uh, we may touch upon the nature of the wicked messy problem, to use the jargon, about, uh, about public health problems. And we've got a couple of people in the audience who are real experts in this area uh, um, around it. But there is not a simple sin single linear cause for most of the issues about the public's health. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking at things where possible in order to establish that, but it isn't sufficient. And that we have this model in evidence-based medicine that's very strong around cost-effectiveness now. And you know, as you know, I've, as, as Denise mentioned, I have an interest in health economics. And you, you know, there's, a, there's a substantive body of material about how we do cost-effectiveness analysis and how that's different from some of the other health economic analysis, cost-benefit analysis, cost-utility analysis, cost-efficiency analysis. But in the practical part of my job, most people just want to talk about the return on investment. So what's the relationship between cost-effectiveness and the return on investment? And then the timescale around the evidence. Uh, often we're looking at things that we have collected data on, usually and ideally purposefully, we've set up a study in order to do this uh, and looked at it, and then we have the results of that. But in many of the areas that, that I deal with in my day-to-day -day life and my colleagues deal with, we're actually talking about things that take such a long time in order to be clear about what the consequences are. We need to establish a different way of collecting that evidence and using that evidence. Uh, and that can be really quite fraught with problems as I'm going to show around tobacco control. Uh, so just picking those three. The multi-causal approach. I'm reading a fantastic, the best thriller I've read for a long time. It stands up there with the, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. So, um, and it's called Saving Gotham. It's not about Batman. It is the story of Mayor Bloomberg and Tom Frieden, who was his uh, public health uh, who led the public health service in New York, and how they uh, designed a population health level in set of interventions across the city of New York. How they banned smoking in bars. If you go to New York, you know some of these things because they're part of the life that we, we now live. How they uh, took on the retail industry around trans fats, how they had food labelling, uh, a whole series of, of population health interventions. And it's, it's a riveting read because the ups and the downs, the arguments with politicians, remember the public, with sectors of industry, um, the disappointments when rulings go against them, it's an absolute fascinating you know, and very entertaining book. It's written by the person who was Tom's deputy. Tom is now the director of, uh, of the Centre for Disease Control, the CDC in, the, in Atlanta. Um, um, 
Moving on just to think a little bit about the cost effectiveness and the return on investment. Uh, so this is becoming better understood and the link between the two is becoming more explicit. If we look at the work that the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, NICE, have done, they now put out at their, on their public health studies both their cost effectiveness analysis and their return on investment analysis. And so just to pick a couple of numbers to just um, help illustrate that, their, their work on cost effectiveness analysis shows that uh, running a brief, a brief intervention uh, around helping to stop people stop smoking, uh, and if you add some self-help to that, you have a highly effective cost-effectiveness ratio intervention. Uh, it's better than if you do the brief intervention by itself. Um, the, the numbers are sort of mind-bogglingly small when you think that we normally talk about some of these drugs having a 20 or 30,000 pound cost per quality. Here we're talking about 370 pounds cost per quality. But at the same time, they've done a return on investment model based around the borough, the, the borough in Manchester about Berry, And that gives you then the length of the, the, the return that you have for every pound that you invest. Uh, Recognising that in Berry, the Director of Public Health and the local authority are going to be sitting there thinking, in our reducing budget, we need to know what is the point at which the, every additional pound we choose to spend on this area is going to lead to a financial payback. It's about three to three and a half years is the, is the level, as you can tell from the numbers that are there. But that understanding, that sophistication of having both cost-effectiveness and the rigour that's gone into that and converting that into return on investment is a big struggle and is relatively rare uh, across the system. And then, and then finally, this issue about prospective evidence and uh, uh, what better example have we got than the debate over e-cigarettes? where for us to be absolutely clear about the public health benefit, the population health benefit that comes from e-cigarettes, we need to look into the future through our crystal ball. Uh, um, but through mixed methods, through a variety of different analytical tools, through collecting evidence that is not just, it's partly about surveillance, it's partly about toxicology, but it's also about expert opinion, then you can start to think, well, what might be the, 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 the effectiveness of e-cigarettes e as, as part of an integrated tobacco control plan in an area. And you probably know that the report that Public Health England published concluded that uh, any form of smoking is, is not what we should be promoting, but if you are going to smoke, then e-cigarettes are 95% safer than smoking conventional cigarettes. Uh, and then we have, just before Christmas, a report from the Surgeon General in the States. It gives a very different perspective on the evidence uh, about the dangers of e-cigarettes as essentially a gateway for young people moving into uh, uh, other forms of addiction uh, around it. And we have two bits of evidence hanging there, and the, the contrast, and we see these in quite a number of areas. There are probably some people in the room who are looking at the childhood flu vaccine, where, again, it's another example of where the UK and the US have got very different evidence bases, and we're dealing with that contradiction. 
Is the explanation for this in the nature of the context? Is it the way in which the interventions have been designed and implemented? Um, is it because there's a methodological flaw in the studies? Or is it all of those things? So that leads us to think, what's good enough evidence? And we need to be really clear about what our evidence is there for. What does, in Tony Baer's phrase, working, what does that really mean? It's very easy to say, we want to have evidence about what works. But we have to define what working means, as well as what the evidence is. And so there are all sorts of quite tricky questions that we need to uh, peel back in order to be clear about how we reach the point that we have an evidence-based policy that is also aligned with evidence-based healthcare. I'm going to just reflect on that a little bit further by, by a, a, another area. And so I uh, was, uh, for, for six months last year, uh, acting into another role, which meant I got very involved in the debate around the, what became the Childhood Obesity Plan. And I think all of us, whether we're uh, clinicians or social scientists, uh, will recognise the uh, issue about what a complex issue obesity is and how there are so many different aspects of our life that play into the, uh, in addressing the, what we call the obesity challenge, the, the obesity epidemic. And so I was just reflecting, really, on the, on the journey of the, of the evidence into practice of the last few years, starting with a, a growing number of academic studies. I, you know, if I'd have had the time, I'd have gone back and just looked at the, the number of papers that had been published over that and how that's a, a, a clear, I guess, exponential growth would be my guess. How increasingly there's became more and more surveillance data and the government decided to invest, somewhat controversially, in, in a in a programme to actually measure childhood weight. Uh, some sort of uh, synthesis of all of that evidence coming together. You know, Cochrane published 2011, uh, still essentially in an academic context, but then starting to move into the policy sphere. And we have the uh, purple document at the top from um, the Government's Advisory Committee about that, chaired by a professor from Oxford. Uh, um, but essentially being still... That's right at the threshold between evidence and, in, and into policy. Moving into our report about sugar reduction, which um, is much more policy-orientated, includes specific recommendations to government about a uh, multi-strand policy in terms of uh, addressing obesity. Um, the document that I can't show you, um, because, uh, but it's been on the television widely because Channel 4 Dispatches programme ran a whole programme contrasting the original document that was written and was sitting with David Cameron before the referendum and the document that came out afterwards, which is the document on the far left-hand side, which was the Childhood Obesity Plan. So it moved from a Childhood Obesity Strategy to a Childhood Obesity Plan, but also spinning off into the decision that the Chancellor took about the sugary drink levy, um, which we learnt about on the morning of the budget. Uh, um, and lots of people have been able to speculate quite widely about how uh, the sugar levy managed to capture all the headlines around the budget, which meant that the, the amount of coverage about some of the other things in the budget was much less. So that long and winding road that's really built up over many years is a, is a 
great little example of, of the journey that we go on with evidence and policy. Of course, what a hugely... That might be quite... Uh, might seem long and winding as you're in the middle of it, but that's a hugely simplistic portrayal of what, what happens. It's probably post hoc rationalisation, because in the middle of it, you just weren't aware of it. There was a good deal of muddling through, which is a, a, a phrase in the, uh, in the policy literature going right back to the 1950s from Lindblom about uh, how policy goals aren't clear and there are all sorts of little loops that are happening uh, and the real politic that goes on. So that nice, neat uh, sort of logical line that I described before, uh, my view is it is helpful for us to keep this rather pure uh, and uh, inadequate but uh, important way of thinking about it as the way in which we start the discussion. But we need to deal with some of the political reality. I've often wondered, would any of this happened if Jamie Oliver hadn't decided to take the role that he took and, and run a very strong campaign? He has a significant foundation behind him that enables him to achieve all sorts of things that uh, are not just related to the power of his media personality, but are related to a good deal that sits behind that. And then the practicality is not just of getting the policy, the evidence into policy, but the practical issues about implementation. Um, and what does this mean, you know, with a set of policy interventions, some of which are about national policy, but most of which are about what happens that we make our own decisions about, that we make decisions for our families about, that we deal with our friends and our communities... Uh, that our local authorities and local health service providers deal with, that our employers, in terms of what they offer us at lunchtime, the practical realities of implementation. It's going to reflect on, a, on another example. Uh, um, as Denise said, I'm a, originally a geographer from Oxford. We have a Prime Minister who's a geographer from Oxford. Uh, so she will have had she was considerably a few years before me, I hasten to add, but I can be absolutely sure she will have had a very good grounding in health inequalities from her undergraduate training um, at, this, at this institution. And so therefore, on the steps of Downing Street, in her four-and-a-half-minute talk, she decided that the majority of that was going to talk about inequalities in our, in our country. Um, Although the way in which she became Prime Minister was a unique set of events, she won't have made that speech lightly, and there will have been some very clear thought about what was behind it. Um, um, what does that mean for policy? So we're, we're in that middle stage now, with a, a statement of political ambition and intent, uh, but a lack of clarity about what that actually means. Um, by a, a, a neat irony, we, a lot of the statistics that we produce in Public Health England are the statistics that, with the Office of National Statistics that, that sit behind that. And this is one of Denise's specialist areas, so I'm recognising the expertise in the room. Um, but when we released our inequality figures, we actually have the Holford McKinder Professor of Geography on our advisory committee, and he is quoted prominently in our, in our press release. Um, and... Uh, uh, we're now starting to think through how can we 
think, what are the evidence-based interventions? Well, that's not coming from nowhere, because there was a major report commissioned by the Labour government, published just a few months before the 2010 election, and its commission was about the evidence about addressing health inequalities. But the issue for us that I just wanted to open up was this issue about, are we interested in the evidence base, but are we interested in best practice? Because at the same time, the team that had done a lot of the work working with Sir Michael Marmot produced its best practice guide. And is there a material difference between best practice and best evidence? I'm going to now just pick up the accountability um, issue. And obviously there, the, the word accountability is part of our everyday speech, and we use it in a number of different ways. Um, but it also has some very precise meanings. It has a meaning in the, uh, in the management world. I've drawn on it from the project literature here about the, the individual who is ultimately uh, answerable. Um, but it also has a big meaning in the public policy sphere. Um, and there, it tends to be put much more in a wider context about uh, who holds whom to account and for what. This sort of a relationship. And so in the new public health system that was designed in 2013, what we've had is... a. a, a a, a, a number of different lines of accountability within the system. Uh, if we try to define what is the public's, the, the activity that happens for the public's health, then uh, it, it, ex it manifests itself through a number of different lines of accountability reporting up to the government, um, and I'm just looking at it from a top-down perspective here. We have a specific sum of money that sits with NHS England for national public health interventions that need to happen similar, in the same way across the country, <laughs> screening and immunisation being the best examples. We have a lot of work that happens from the clinical commissioning groups, uh, being the local commissioners of NHS services, but much of that is not explicit. It's difficult to know exactly what they do that is clear public health. Um, and that boundary between clinical care and public health becomes very, very much of, of, of an issue for them. We have what most people think of as the bulk of the public health spend in, in this country now sits with the upper tier local authorities, the 3.4 billion. That was money that was in the NHS. It's money that's voted to the Department of Health, but is allocated um, through Public Health England to local authorities. And then there's... Uh, well, I can quite safely say it's a tiny sum of money relative to the others that comes to, to my organisation to do what we do, which a lot of which is about advice about the evidence, but also running a number of things that run through the whole system around information, data, uh, and responding to emergencies. There's very little research about this system. Uh, uh, David Hunter and Linda Marks up in Durham have got a, a grant and uh, I, had a, I was part of a detailed presentation that they gave uh, just before Christmas. It's essentially a description about some of the dynamics that's happening in that, in that system. We've had a number of select committees that have done hearings into that and called for evidence and had a, a number of contributions to it. Uh, uh, I think, by and large, they've been saying that uh, whether you agree with the policy or not, the system um, has uh, 
that you can, you can track some things in this system that it was impossible to track in the previous system. We had no idea how much money was spent on public health before 2013. Uh, now there is a clear set of sums of money and clear accountabilities for those, but the Hunter and uh, Mark's work is clearly showing that there are some real problems about aligning the different components of that to give a cohesive picture. So when we think about the evidence and the public health system, we're, we're left with this, uh, with a, with a, at a simple level, at a high level, this contrast between speaking with independence and speaking to gain influence. Now, some people may not agree that these are contrasting issues that need to be balanced, and there may be some inherent tension between them. Um, but... The practical reality sometimes that I've experienced is that uh, you need to be able to manage both of these, those, these two things simultaneously. And the government has obviously invested and wanted independent advice. I'm not talking about the NHS here, I'm talking just about public health. We've got four sources of independent advice, all created very explicitly and publicly by government. We have Public Health England, and I'll touch on us again in a minute. We have the Chief Medical Officer a role by statute. We have joint committees and we have the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence. The issue of our accountability um, is, is a one that's very topical. It was a big issue when we were created through debate in the House of Lords. The issue for us is uh, we feel we have and we're clear that we have the independence to speak to the evidence. The bit that we've agreed to do in the trade is when is that published so it's the the timing not the content and that's the way of for us of ensuring that we do sit at the table being at the table is sometimes important it would be very easy to be absent from tables so how do we strike that balance i'm going to very quickly rattle through just the last three slides the implementation issue is one that faces local government how do local government put evidence into practice? They don't come from an evidence-based medicine paradigm, and so therefore it is much more of an issue for them, and this has been an issue for many directors of public health who've moved from the health service into local government. Perhaps the most likely route of this is around the peer challenge and sector-led improvement approach to it, which retains the flexibility and the uh, lightness of touch that you sometimes need in order to put the evidence the most topical evidence into practice. What we have in the, from the NHS perspective is essentially a contrasting approach between the top-down implementation, which says, the evidence says, you will, says this, and you will go off and do it, where the national accountability far right away is the local. But potentially in the sustainability and transformation plans that the NHS uh, is, has asked 44 footprints around the country, a whole debate about their accountability, is saying you come up with what you think the evidence base says, where potentially the local accountability far outweighs the national. <coughs> and so I, I end up where I started, really, about this issue about what is the evidence and what does it lead us to think about? Because in many areas that I work with, the evidence is not clear the evidence is either partial because it comes through a particular lens or um, it doesn't yet exist. 
And very often I hear people say, we want to innovate, and the evidence base doesn't allow us to innovate. So sometimes tying ourselves to evidence-based medicine and evidence-based healthcare acts as a restriction upon our innovation. But for me, I was the uh, midwife for the uh, academic health science networks, and we thought very hard about how we address that problem. And we did it through three mechanisms. Firstly, we made sure that the AHSNs had an accountability that was the primary accountability was to each other. It was about peer challenge, peer support. Secondly, where we needed to have national accountability, we made that um, very tight around doing specific things, which was a contract for implementing particular pieces of evidence. But thirdly, that isn't sufficient. We needed to allocate resource which enabled organisations to grow and nurture and to have flexibility and freedom to do their own work. And so we created a licence for the AHSNs, which was in effect a licence for them to operate to do the things that they thought were right. And so therefore, in order to strike this balance, my personal view is that we should be looking at ever-increasing ways of creating this horizontal accountability between peers as the best way of implementing evidence into practice. Thank you very much. Thank you enormously, Richard. That was a, first, a fabulous first lecture. You set up so many of the issues that we're going to be addressing over the next few weeks. Um, I'm going to pass straight across to Sue Dobson, and then we'll open up for discussion. So Professor Dobson's research centres on leadership and transformational change in the public and healthcare sectors. And as I mentioned earlier, she is from the Side Business School. Um, she is also, I'm very pleased uh, and proud to say, um, a governing body fellow here at Green Templeton College. Her work has informed and influenced many government bodies, such as the Department of Health, NICE, um, the National Institute for Health, etc. Um, and it's, how it's influenced their thinking in areas such as the dis dissemination of clinical evidence into practice, medical leadership, this is an area that she's particularly known for, and the role of the support worker in the NHS. So, Sue, you're very welcome. Thank you. Right, Richard, are we okay? No, not you again. You're the one below. You? I am the one below. Okay, so thank you very much for that warm introduction. Um, I'm indeed from the Side Business School and um, I, I spent, gosh, I, I started with, in Templeton College some 28 years ago. I was only 12 when I started, so I've been here an awful long time. And uh, I've always been very curious about um, healthcare and leadership in healthcare. And um, I guess over my career, I, I've, I've been studying in some way or other you know, lots of change in the health service. I've kind of given, given up the 2010, but you know, I've been kind of in this space for, for quite a while. And what's, Incredibly interesting is, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of repetitive nature of the structures and reorganisations and, frankly, the failure of the system to really learn from anything ever I've really written or colleagues have written about why change is difficult. But anyway, but that's very... 
that's very sad, very true. Um, so I am interested in leadership, and I am particularly interested in how difficult leadership is in complex systems such as healthcare. It's not the only complex system. My favourite definition of leadership is actually disappointing people at a rate they can cope with, right? <laughs> because I think it's such a hard, such a hard gig. So, um, in, in some ways, what I want to do in this this very brief talk is is talk a little bit about um, a couple of the projects that I've been involved in. One was indeed looking at evidence-based medicine, but I came at it with really trying to understand what really motivated clinicians to either practice evidence-based medicine or what, what really was going on in terms of um, their decision process. I've also looked um, more recently at evidence-based management, such a thing, right? And I'll say a little bit about, about that. And there's some reoccurring themes there about the nature of what evidence is um, and the complexity and the way in which it, it becomes something that's grabbed hold of and shaped. So I have a real problem with the word translation in the sense that it becomes very rational. I think it's much messier than that, and I'll try and talk a little bit about why that is. Um, but I wanted to pr uh, present a very brief vignette or case study looking at a network. You mentioned networks in your, in your talk, um, and we know that networks are very much seen as a vehicle for translating good ideas into practice. And I want to just showcase uh, a little vignette of... Um, one that me and my team studied for over five years, looking at the role of genetics, trying to get great science into practice in that space. And then I'll just make some final conclusions or observations <coughs> about why, frankly, we need different models of change and why we need different models of leadership uh, if we're going to make any progress at all. So that's roughly what I'm going to do in the next oh, 15 or so minutes. Um, so... Um, yeah, let me just say a little bit first, though, about the, the, the study that we did do, where we did look at evidence-based medicine and what it meant. So lots of my work and my team's work are just spending lots of time talking to people, uh, doing quite in-depth interviews, and asking people what really influenced their practice. So talking to clinicians about what influenced your practice. Um, and, of course, what we found there, for them, there was no such thing as evidence yeah, necessarily. It was more complicated than it wasn't just the guidelines, but evidence for them was also when you know, for a doctor when when they when they had to handle their first death, and then they looked at it. It was experiential, and they talked about experiences. So when we're talking about evidence, it's not just about Cochrane and the guidelines. It's also this blended approach about how people make sense of their own experience. So one theme of that work, and I'm really summarising quite a lot of work is really there's no such thing as evidence in a very concrete way. It can mean all sorts of things. It's a malleable concept. And, of course, we know in professional work there are hierarchies of evidence, and we need to understand that. Part of the reason, as I'll show in a minute, why different professions find it hard to talk to one another is because they have different views about what is real data. And sometimes we just can't talk about it. Um, and in that work also uh, came the importance of opinion leaders. You do get in systems, people who really are brave and mavericks and they can cross boundaries and they can translate evidence and they model good practice. And by supporting those opinion leaders, you can get good evidence into practice if they are supported. And I guess the final thing um, that I wanted to talk about and that came up very strongly and has been a theme in my work is the importance of leaders understanding context. Whatever you're doing, whether you're trying to get good ideas into practice or evidence into practice, or innovation into practice, 
we do not spend enough time as leaders thinking about context. I want to come back to that in the vignette. So we have seen in, 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 in that work um, the, 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 this kind of questioning that evidence is something that's very rational and tangible. It's messier than that. The second uh, problem or subject that I looked at quite recently was this idea of evidence-based management. And my goodness, if you work in a business, we're responsible for some of this stuff, right? So there's lots and lots of fads and ideas about management evidence that's out there. And the study that we looked at was, again, with, with leaders in, in a range of healthcare settings. <coughs> what was it that made them curious about evidence? What was it that made them curious about evidence? And what caused them to engage with the stuff that I might write or the side business school might produce? Um, so kind of interesting there. One thing we found by asking questions about what kind of evidence they draw on, that you suddenly find that nobody reads any management stuff at all, actually. And, and the journals and all the stuff that we get measured for are not really very influential at all. In fact, it is, again, personal experience. And so the story here about why people grabbed a hold of some of these ideas was basically that they had a puzzle in a context, they wanted to solve it, they were brave enough to solve it, and they again grabbed hold of evidence and grabbed hold of bits of context and stitched together something that actually allowed them to implement it. So we came up with this idea that, that, that leaders um, and managers in this space don't translate evidence in a very rational way. In fact, they transpose it, they mould it, they look at context, they use context, they grab it, they mould it. So transposition for me is a better uh, word for, for really representing this complex issue. So can I then move on uh, to looking at the case study where um, we begin to look at some of the more general challenges of getting great ideas into practice and why it's so difficult to work across these boundaries that we see in healthcare, between the university and the NHS, between different professional groups. So we studied um, uh, the, uh, the genetics knowledge parks. These were pre your academic health sciences centres and so forth. But essentially, um, six genetics knowledge parks were set up in the UK quite a large sum of money, I can't remember, but an outstanding amount of money, um, and we studied one of those. Um, and what we always do when we, when we look at a, a kind of policy problem is we just, where did the idea come from? And this, this, this quotation here could be any, any of the places that I've studied, right? Any, any. <laughs> uh, so the notion here was, um, the idea, so, so let me do, I would say, the idea of the genetics knowledge part was to get the university and the healthcare system to work together in order to get great science into practice. So the same trans translational challenge. So the idea for this appeared very late in the drafting of an NH plan, but she just a sentence, just a throwaway sentence that took everyone by surprise. And when the health secretary was questioned, you tell me. And then we had to develop some themes, right? So we have here the basis of not very good, thoughtful change management. And uh, in, a, in a sense, there was no real specification of what these networks were there to do. Problem, okay? So we studied one of these networks. Um, and again, you know, in my world, when you go in to look at a change problem, you have to begin to understand in detail the context. 
And I would argue that you know, the more we can understand the complicated context in which we are seeking to intervene and get evidence into practice, the more likely we are to be able to at least get some traction and some success. So this was the story here. So the Department of Health came in. They didn't know what they were doing. They gave the money out, but no idea what was going on. The Department of Trade and Industry got involved because they thought genetics would have a commercial benefit. And they, frankly, had money left in the pot. And they didn't know what else to do with it. So there we are. And then you get the, you know, the, the crafting of the bid with the great and the good on it. Uh, and they're all there at the beginning. But then you find them disappearing, okay, over the first two years. And you're left with a core of people. So um, I want to tell you a bit about the story. So when we looked at this, there were all sorts of challenges. But again, part of understanding the story has to be linked to this. That if we really want to understand context, it's not just about you know, what the groups are, but it's also... Um, you know, their unit, their, their affiliation organisationally, what does the organisation context allow them to do, how they incentivise, etc. But also how are they trained, okay? How do they see the world? We know that socialisation processes have huge impacts on how we think about evidence and how we use it. So, in this story of the genetics knowledge park, we have these communities of practice, yeah? and each of whom have been trained in a different discipline, which shapes the way in which they think and feel and talk, etc. And it makes a difference um, how these groups get on depending on where they're situated. So even if you are trained in biomedicine, you're, if you're in a lab, an NHS lab, you're required to do very, very careful testing. If you're in a research lab, you know, you, you, you in a sense are looking for the papers to publish. So, um, let me tell you a little bit about the story. So, in the end, uh, this is five years, six years of work, right? And genetic science is really so. Nothing happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you just kind of, uh, so, you know, you have to do other things while this stuff's going on, otherwise you'd go mad. But nonetheless, what you tend to find, what, what, what we found here, is that you know, these people were well-intentioned. Everybody wanted to work together to get great genetic science into practice. Yeah, everybody wanted to try it, so there was no kind of nastiness. But we got conflicts all over the place. We got conflicts with the Department of Health, who after three years decided that they ought to measure what was going on, so we got lots of tick boxes. Boom, conflict. Um, we got a conflict here in terms of the, the labs. I just want to give you a bit of a quote on this. So there was a clash here between people who were trained in biomedicine, but they worked in the labs or they worked in the academic area. And you see here a sense, a flavour of the conflict, right? The way we work in the research lab is to try and get everything as fast as possible because it's a competitive <laughs> world. We need visible productivity to scrape over the surface for the big prize. The clinical genetics lab is incredibly compulsive and obsessive. They do everything in duplicate and never get it wrong. That's very reassuring, but the problem is that if you're compulsive and obsessive, it takes too long. Yeah? They, the NHS scientists, feel they're providing a service and being careful, and we, the research scientists, are feckless people who wander at 11 o'clock and go home at 3 and look for glory. Right? <laughs> so now, so, so, and we also know in these networks, again and this has benefited my career quite a lot, that they like social science in them, right? So that's great, okay? But you try working in this. So 
we've got this clash again between science and social science. Now, the economist, interestingly, was able to get on better with the clinicians because, or the scientists, because you've got the data, you've got the science now. So they could talk. Right? Now, this is not me, but it could be. The sociologist's work is weird and of no benefit at all. <laughs> Our world is very black and white, so when a sociologist talks to me about Barrett, he doesn't mean much to me, the story of my life. These weird sort of sociology people, we're just providing material for them to write interesting papers. And so it goes on. So the point that I want to make here, I think, is just going back. This is the kind of work that we need to do to understand context before we start to you know, use the, the, the kind of tried and tested change management stuff. It's incredible work. It's complicated work, and I haven't seen it very well done. And you can learn a lot from studying the history of the organization, historical analysis, but you really need to begin to, to do that. And there are no magic contexts. People talk about that famous, there's no magic bullets and everything. There's no magic context either. <coughs> Now, we inherit contacts, but also I would argue that leaders can shape them. Leaders are a bit like farmers. Farmers don't grow crops. They create the conditions for crops to grow. And great leadership here could have nudged this system or thought about this, and it might have led to better translation of what was fantastic science. So I think um, one of my um, concerns, really, is to make sure that when we're thinking about change management, and this is my kind of area of stuff, yeah? This is, I'm not gonna, this is not an MBA lecture, right? But, you know, when, when we begin to think about change management, the way policymakers often think about it, I think this is changing. But certainly when I've been doing that research, it's about rational management. This is all good stuff, right? This is all good stuff, and you need to do it. But we really need new models of change, and um, I won't even come on to that, but, but just, just thinking about your point there about wicked problems. In leadership work, not enough time is spent by leaders analysing the problem. What problem is it that you want to solve? And um, Keith Bridge, who was a dear colleague of ours uh, in Oxford, but he went somewhere else, city boy, but anyway, he did, um, talked about uh, three kinds of problems that leaders face. And each kind of problem requires... Um, a, a different kind of approach to leadership and decision-making. So there are times as a leader when you have to just tell them what to do, and that's what you need to do. There are times when you're faced with tame challenges where you have to go out and get fine breast practices, try and bring them back. You still need to nudge it and, and massage it, but bring it back. But this kind of work about translating great ideas and good science and innovation to practice is, as you've said, in that wicked space. It's very much in that wicked space. So um, my concern is really that we think about trying to innovate and with new models of leading change. And when you're dealing with wicked problems, you're in this space of asking questions, not telling people what to do. And, and some, of the, um, some of the lessons from our work around evidence-based management and what, what really seems to, to, to work is the importance of being curious. What are the puzzles in the organisation? What are the puzzles in the organisation? Um, really beginning to stand back. And Heifetz talks about, as a leadership guru, good chap though, and he says the importance about standing on the balcony. Mm. 
and beginning to really think in, in this kind of way about the complexity. What are the patterns here? What do you notice? Okay? What do you notice? And here the clashes were partly because they couldn't talk to one another, but it was also how they were incentivized. Yeah? Publications or not. Um, and what also was interesting is that the university, it was hard to move people around the system. The HR system in the university and the NHS is so different. You couldn't move somebody around. It's nuts. The IT systems didn't speak to one another. So if you get on the balcony, you begin to ask questions of this star, you begin to see, oh my goodness, no wonder they can't work together. And that's the kind of work that we, we need to do. So we need to identify the context. We need to think very carefully about the challenge. And in our work, um, there's been a lot of evidence which suggests that leaders who provide safe spaces for conversations to happen that wouldn't normally happen, are more likely to get translational work evidence into practice. They're more likely to do that. So part of newly, how do you provide a holding space, a safe space, for conversations that wouldn't normally happen? And that's how you begin to solve uh, wicked problems. Um, so I can give you a lecture on adaptive leadership, but, but, but I think the point here is we need to have time for questions, is really to make the point that we do need very different kinds of models of leadership and change, an appreciation of the complexity of contexts, and, and, and people are part of that, and groups are part of that, and how we nudge it. And if we can nudge the context a little bit more, we may be more likely to get fantastic evidence into practice. And I think we need to give some time. So I haven't gone through all the slides, but I think that's probably enough to get a, a discussion going. Thank you. Okay.